Morning. Now, like Penny said, my name is Tobias, um, and I am really thankful for the opportunity to get to open up God's Word for us this morning. Over the course of the summer, if you've been with us, um, you know that Penny has been guiding us through a number of psalms. And last week, when we looked at Psalm 84, we were reminded of the incomparable beauty of our Lord, the richness of his dwelling place, and that he invites us, even as sinners, in the midst of a bleak and broken world, to live in fellowship with him in his presence. Comfort this is for us as weary pilgrims. And this morning we have the opportunity to open up another psalm, Psalm uh, 36, which the title tells us is the Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. And so I invite you to go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word to Psalm 36. You also find it printed in the order of worship. And please give your careful attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible Word. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked Drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Mighty God, we ask this morning that you will make our hearts sensitive and that you will open up our ears and our eyes to see what you have to teach us. May you send your spirit to illumine our minds that we may know who we are and know who you are and what you have done. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, earlier this summer, I enjoyed revisiting um, George Orwell's masterful little story, Animal Farm. <laughs> and as I began reading, I was quickly reintroduced to its most infamous character, a pig named Napoleon, who was, as Orwell describes, 
a rather fierce-looking Berkshire boar, not much of a talker, but with a reputation for getting his own way. And if you're familiar with the story, then you know that Napoleon, full of self-flattery and lacking any restraint, works to deceive and brutalize his fellow animals on the farm, all for the purpose of securing their complete subjugation to him and his own self-aggrandizement. I don't think it goes too far to say that he sets himself up as a god on the farm. In fact, we see this godlike stature memorialized in a blasphemous hymn composed for him toward the end of the story. And it goes like this. Friend of the fatherless, fountain of happiness, lord of the swill bucket. Oh, how my soul is on fire when I gaze at thy calm and commanding eye. Like the sun in the sky, comrade Napoleon, thou art the giver of all thy creatures' love, full belly twice a day, clean straw to roll upon. Every beast, great or small, sleeps at peace in his stall. Thou watchest over all, comrade Napoleon. Had I a sucking pig, ere he had grown as big, even as a pint bottle or rolling pin, he should have learned to be faithful and true to thee. Yes, his first squeak should be Comrade Napoleon. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> you can imagine when Napoleon heard this, he was overcome with delight, and he ordered it to be inscribed on the barn wall opposite the Seven Commandments. <laughs> Talk about getting one's own way. Well, this morning as we take up Psalm 36, we are likewise introduced in the first stanza to another who is bent on getting his own way, the wicked. And the picture David paints for us at the beginning of this psalm is deeply unsettling, isn't it? But the good news is that David doesn't leave us there. Instead, in the following two stanzas, he turns his gaze away from the wicked directing it upward as he sings of the glorious character of God and most especially of his love. And when he has brought this magnificent hymn to a close, in the final stanza, he turns to the Lord and opens up his heart in prayer. Friends, there's a beautiful and profound progression in this psalm. From lament over the wicked in verses 1 through 4, to hymnic praise in verses 5 through 9, to prayer in verses 10 through 12. And so as we turn our attention to this psalm, I'd like us to look carefully at this progression as we consider what God is teaching us about the foolishness of the wicked, the love of God, and the prayer of the upright. So as we turn our attention to the first stanza, I think the first thing we need to recognize is that the wicked listens to the voice of transgression. You see, we read in verse 1 that transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. And it's significant to note that the word transgression here commonly carries the meaning of rebellion. The picture is vivid. It's as if rebellion itself has been whispering treacherous words to the wicked, and his words have taken root deep in his heart. But this is no ordinary earthly rebellion man against man. This is rebellion against God. And we see this clearly in the second half of the verse. There is no fear of God 
before his eyes. Throughout scripture, the godly are pictured as those who listen to the voice of the Lord and cherish his words. In 1 Samuel 3, when the Lord comes and stands before Samuel as he sleeps in the temple and twice calls his name, Samuel, Samuel, the young boy hears him, unlike the priest Eli, and responds, speak, for your servant is listening. And the text goes on to tell us that Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail. Indeed, the psalmist declares in Psalm 119, Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. But here, just like our first parents, Adam, who welcomed the cunning words of the serpent, choosing to believe his lies rather than the truth of God, the wicked listens to the voice of transgression. There is no fear of God before his eyes. And this, I think, is the summation of the foolishness of the wicked. It is a rejection of God as God and a failure to listen to his voice. But it doesn't stop there. As the stanza unfolds, the foolishness of the wicked results in a cascade of sinful behavior in a life marked by deception, cruelty, and deceit. Notice what is said of the wicked in verse 2. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. We know from Proverbs 15 that the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. And before honor comes humility. But the wicked, rather than fearing God, sets himself up in the place of God and claims the right to govern himself. As Paul writes in Romans 1, He has exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. In other words, in his eyes, the wicked is untethered. He's accountable to no one. He's free to think and to act as he sees fit. And it reminds me of the famous lines from the poem written by William Henley, Invictus. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But you know, I think the reality is that such a thought is not altogether distasteful to us, is it? How often we claim the right to do what we want and work to manipulate situations in our own lives, whether at work or at home or at school, practically dethroning God and seeking above all to get our own way. But perhaps we're not tuned in enough to the subtle ways this foolishness creeps into our own thinking. After all, we know that the heart is deceitful above all things, as Jeremiah reminds us. We need to look carefully then at the fruit of such foolishness. Notice what he says of the wicked in verses 3 and 4. He speaks evil and deceit. He is unable to act wisely and do good. He plots wickedness in the secrecy of his bedroom and sets himself on a path that is not good. Above all, he does not reject evil. What a contrast this is to the life of the godly. Indeed, the psalmist declares in Psalm 97, hate evil, you who love the Lord. So what about you? Does any of this ring true 
as you consider your own life? Do you ever choose to do something because you think God doesn't see or care? Do hurtful words about another person ever delight your ears or escape your lips? Do you ever entertain impure or cruel thoughts in the secrecy of your own mind? And as we consider these questions, we need to be mindful not to let the sheer totality of the wickedness described in this stanza prevent us from recognizing our own sin in it. It's true that these verses paint a picture of a hardened sinner, one who has made discourse with transgression a habit and therefore reaped a full harvest of wickedness. But the root of his foolishness is common to us all. And this is why the Apostle Paul, in order to bring home the truth that all, both Jew and Gentile, are guilty of sin, concludes his argument in Romans 3 by quoting verse 2 from this very psalm. There is no fear of God before their eyes, he writes. In other words, we are all fundamentally guilty of the foolishness of the wicked. So where do we go from here? This opening stanza paints a desperate picture of our own foolishness. It's as if a mirror has been held up before our eyes, and there's a danger that such intense, unaltered focus on our own sinfulness might lead us to despair rather than peace, which is, of course, exactly what Satan wants. In his famous book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis wrote that self Contempt can be made the starting point for contempt of others, and thus for gloom, cynicism, and cruelty. How then do we avoid the misstep of falling, like Christian in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, into the slough of despond? Friends, we need to redirect our focus off of ourselves and our own sinfulness. And this is exactly what David teaches us to do in the following psalm verses. And so as we turn to the next two stanzas, we're immediately struck with a contrast. In verse 5, David writes, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Did you catch that? He begins with your. Take another look at the first stanza. It's written entirely in the third person. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. He flatters himself that his iniquity cannot be found out and so on. But here, David begins with your. The second person pronoun, your and you, is used 12 times in verses 5 through 9. It punctuates these stanzas and signals to us that David has shifted his focus away from the wicked, even away from himself. And this shift is made all the more striking because the object of his attention is at first glance unexpected. We're accustomed to read in the Psalms about contrast between the righteous person and the wicked person. Notice, for example, the contrast developed in Psalm 1. The blessed man in verse 1, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, is set against the wicked who, in verse 4, are like chaff, which the wind drives away. And the psalmist's conclusion in verse 6 underscores this contrast. 
For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, he writes. The way of the wicked will perish. But that's not what David does here. Instead, he directs his focus upward and contrasts the foolishness of the wicked with the character of the Lord. And in doing so, he provides us with an inspired example of what to do when confronted with the reality of our own guilt and shame. Remember, David was deeply aware of his own sinfulness. In Psalm 51, he wrote, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. As David contemplated the foolishness of the wicked in verses 1 through 4, he was confronted not only with the failings of those he knew, perhaps even loved, but with his own failings and his own inability. And so here he turns his attention away from the wicked, away from those who've wronged him, away from himself indeed, away from all creaturely arrogance and impotence, and he directs it instead upon the sure character of God, and he draws comfort. And it's striking to me that he doesn't simply tell us about God. He sings about him. He embodies the response of a faithful servant of God, and in doing so, he again models for us how we should, we re should respond when confronted with the desperateness of our own situation. And the song that he sings unfolds in a glorious two-part hymn comprising the second and third stanza in verses 5 and 6 and 7 through 9. So what does David say? How does he extol the character of God? Let's take a look at verses 5 and 6. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O oh Lord. Did you notice the first noun, steadfast love? It's that word hesed, which pops up repeatedly in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. We encountered it earlier this summer when Penny preached on Psalm 51, which begins, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. It's a profound word that draws attention to the special kindness of God, his merciful, gracious, and faithful love. And I can't help thinking of the charming refrain we find running throughout the narrative in the well-known Jesus storybook Bible. Some of you know what I'm talking about. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And it's in this psalm we're considering this morning, we see the word used three times in verses 5, 6, 7, and 10. But unlike its use in verse 7, where it stands alone, here in verses 5 and 6, David couples it with the nouns faithfulness, righteousness, and judgments. And he draws on imagery from creation to paint a stunning picture of the vastness grandeur and unfathomable nature of God's character. Indeed, as he sings, he reminds us that God's steadfast love and faithfulness are as boundless as the skies above, that his righteousness is as majestic and unshakable as the mightiest of mountains, and that his judgments are as unsearchable as the deepest oceans. 
And the picture David paints is not just panoramic in its scope. It's cosmic. And it's drawn with a master's touch. Notice how he draws our eyes upward to the heavens and then deftly draws them down toward the clouds and then into the mountains and then to the seas. What a breathtaking vision of the all-encompassing and ever-present glory of the living God. It's no wonder that he sings these truths. And it reminds me of the chorus of creation in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. But you know what stirs me the most is that David's vision of the transcendent glory of God in verses 5 and 6, rather than keeping him at a distance, draws God closer to us. Did you notice the final clause in this stanza? Man and beast you save, O Lord. It reminds me of God's faithfulness to Noah and his family and to the creatures of the earth in Genesis 6 through 9. And I can't help but think that David, having just contemplated the foolishness of the wicked, is now recalling that story as he meditates upon the character of God. Like the wicked in verses 1 through 4, before whose eyes there is no fear of God, the foolishness of the wicked in Genesis 6 had reached such a climax that the Lord, we are told, was sorry that he had made man and resolved, therefore, to blot him out, opening wide the fountains of the great deep and unleashing his judgments upon him in a terrible flood. But at the same time, God's wrath was balanced by his steadfast love, and he brought the ark and its occupants safely to rest upon the mountains of Ararat. And afterward, we are told that God sealed his commitment toward his creation with a covenant, promising never again to destroy all living things as he had done. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. You see, verses 5 and 6 invite us to contemplate and praise the fullness of God's character, to bow before him in holy fear, to give thanks to him for his ongoing care of all of creation, and to take comfort in the knowledge that he desires to have fellowship with us. And I think it's the sweetness of this last thought, that God desires fellowship with us, that fills David's mind as he continues to sing. And so as we turn our attention to the third stanza, in verse 7, we again see the word steadfast love, but this time it stands alone as the object of David's intense delight. He writes, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. He's overwhelmed by the very thought of it, isn't he? How could it be? Against you, you only, I have sinned, he confesses in Psalm 51. How could you love me, wretched sinner that I am? And yet here he believes him. He trusts in the merciful love of God and his confidence in the Lord's love finds expression in the second half of the verse. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. What a vivid image of our dependency and vulnerability. It reminds me of the song Moses sang in Deuteronomy 32 of God's wondrous deliverance of his people from the hand of Pharaoh. He found them in a desert land, he writes, and in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. 
He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them, carried them on his pinions. What a blessing it is to know the love and protection of the living God. Indeed, that we can have fellowship with him, secure in his steadfast love. David understood this. And he was overwhelmed by the very thought of it. What about you? Have you come to know the kindness of the Lord? Do you trust that he's powerful and willing to save? Oh, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. And as David continues to sing, the stanza unfolds. A delectable picture of the fullness of this communion emerges. Notice what he says in verses 8 and 9. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. The entire scene is one of unrivaled joy, satisfaction, and notably dependence. Did you notice the repetition of the pronoun you and your? David says that they savor the riches of your house and your delights. Indeed, he depicts God as the wealthiest and most generous of hosts and us as his favored guests. But more than that, he shows God to be the very source of life and illumination. With you, he says, is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. You know, it reminds me of, of what C.S. Lewis said in his essay, Is Theology Poetry? I believe in Christianity, he says, as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Isn't that great? And it's striking that the language David uses throughout this stanza is not drawn merely from scenes of ordinary human life, as good as they are, but it also evokes images of the temple. Consider, for example, that David calls the temple God's house in 1 Chronicles 22. Also, the word delights in the phrase river of delights in verse 8 is the same word used for Eden whose garden is depicted as a holy temple in Ezekiel 28. Likewise, the vision of the new temple in Revelation 22 is set with a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and that none will have need of a lamp, nor even of the sun, because the Lord will illumine them. Even the wings in verse 7, which provide us with a place of refuge, Point to the cherubim and the temple, whose outstretched wings extended from one side to the other in the house of God in 1 Kings 6. You see, it was in the temple, God's meeting place, which he filled with his own transcendent glory, <clears throat> that his presence, indeed his steadfast love, was most fully enjoyed. It's no wonder then that here, David, sing, as he sings of the sweet fellowship, of, of fellowship with God, that his mind is filled with images of it. But you know, the most striking thing to me 
is that the entire scene David paints for us in these two stanzas point to Jesus, the perfect temple. Each image of salvation and protection, of eating and drinking, of life and light, all of them are fulfilled in the sweetness of fellowship with him. Think about it. It was Jesus who mourned over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, saying, How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. It was the risen Jesus, the groom, who said in Revelation 19, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It was Jesus who said to the Samaritan woman in John 4, Whoever drinks the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. And it was Jesus who said in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Friends, do you see that every blessing David sings of in this hymn is found in the person of Jesus? Do you believe that our only hope of rescue from the foolishness of the wicked is in fleeing to the cross? Have you come to know, like Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, that all the promises of God find their yes in him? Oh, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. And as we turn our attention to the final stanza, notice the change that has taken place. David is praying. Having contemplated the foolishness of the wicked and having delighted in the steadfast love of God, here he turns to the Lord and asks him to continue his kindness to him. And not only to him, but to all those who know God, to those who are upright of heart. Did you notice the repetition of the word steadfast love? Again, it's framing David's thinking. And it helps us to understand the abrupt shift we hear in verse 11. Let not the foot of pride come upon me, he prays. And let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. Remember, David was deeply aware of the foolishness of the wicked. He understood that such prideful folly posed a constant danger to the people of God, both from within and from without. And he knew that the only sure refuge for those in need was in the steadfast love of God. And so he asked God to keep his hand of protection upon him. It reminds me of what we sing in Charles Wesley's hymn, Jesus, lover of my soul. Other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, ah, leave me not alone. Still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed. All my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of thy wing. And you know, it's striking that David, having prayed, seems to gain immediate confidence. Notice what he says in the final verse. There the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. It's as if David is at that very moment resting assured in the Lord's saving response. John Calvin put it this way. 
David beholds by the eye of faith as if from a watchtower their destruction and speaks of it with as much confidence as if he had already seen it realized. An example of prayer David sets before us. How beautifully he models the response of one who walks by faith, who knows that the path of the wicked leads to certain ruin, but the steadfast love of God brings peace, abundance, and life everlasting. Friends, do you know that to be true? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you put your faith in him and delighted in the riches of his steadfast love? I sincerely hope that you have. And I trust that as we continue to live and to work and play and worship together, that our prayer might be that of the psalmist in Psalm 33. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him. Because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Let's pray. Almighty God, what a vision David gives us of your splendor, of your glory, of your majesty, of your steadfast love. We pray today that you will keep us from the path of the wicked that you will cause us to reject the foolishness of those who say there is no God and don't fear you. Lord, we ask that you will shelter us with the shadow of your wings for your sake and for the sake of your kingdom. And we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.